Good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Our sermon text for this morning is Acts 6, 8 through 7, 53. Uh, it it uh, is uh, Stephen's sermon or speech uh, before uh, the high priests and others. So we're going to read the whole sermon this morning. Um, Before we do that, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come to you and hear from you. And uh, Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, open our ears and our minds to uh, hear and believe and rest in our Savior. Um, Help us to not only hear but to obey, as we heard earlier from James, Uh, Help us to hear and do uh, your word. Um, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our midst to that end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 6, beginning with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. 
But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At, that, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that, he, pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's a way to end the sermon, right? I believe our every trouble comes back to a fundamental lie that Satan told in the garden that God doesn't love you. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't really know what's best for you. You've got to look out for yourself. And our response to that lie that God doesn't love me was to reject God, to reject his will and to sin. If God doesn't love me, if he's not looking out for me, if he doesn't know what's best for me, my response tends to be to ignore him at best, to take life in my own hands, and to try to secure good things for me here and now. And this is not just true of non-religious people, of course. It's, It's true of religious people. It's true of Christian people. We often seek to live life on our own terms rather than living in obedience to God because we don't trust him. And this was even true of Israel, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what Stephen speaks about before his audience. And, of course, our goal is going to not just be to see how Israel rebelled, uh, but to seek to reverse that trend in our own lives as we seek to honor God and live for Him. Uh, I want to say a couple of things about Stephen's speech first. Uh, One thing is Luke, in the book of Acts, is telling uh, a story. Uh, He's telling a story of how the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And uh, our our text is actually a a key juncture in that story. Uh, Right here in in Acts, what we've seen so far is that the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were rejecting that gospel again and again and again. And uh, it's actually their rejection that will uh, provide the impetus for the outward missionary movement of the church. Uh, We'll talk about that more in two weeks as we look at uh, sort of the fallout from the sermon. Uh, It's in light of Stephen's speech uh, that the gospel begins to go out to the nations. Uh, The second thing to say about this speech or sermon or defense or whatever you want to call it is that it it has certain similarities and certain differences with other speeches in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, uh, this is the longest speech in the book of Acts, uh, which must mean Luke thought it was pretty important to record. Uh, He could have summarized it, uh, as he does uh, likely some of the many other speeches, but he records it in in a bit of detail. And so we're actually going to spend two weeks looking at the sermon uh, and then one week on the, the sort of the fallout from the sermon uh, most of the sermons in Acts follow a certain pattern. It's, it's pretty uh, consistent, especially in the first half of the book. God raised up Jesus, whom you put to death, 
Uh, but God raised him from the dead as Lord in Christ. And then if you repent and believe, uh, you will uh, receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's consistent uh, from Peter to Paul again and again. That's the message of the sermons. And, and while most of the sermons in Acts do build on the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament was their Bible, their scripture uh, that they were preaching from. Uh, here in, uh, in Acts 7, Stephen's speech has only two sentences that are actually about Jesus directly, right? It's all the Old Testament. Uh, he's, he's going through the story of the Old Testament. For that matter, there's actually no call to repentance in Stephen's speech. Unlike the other stories, Stephen never says, repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't end like that. He ends a little bit differently. Um, and what we find is that Stephen's speech is actually not so much a witness to Jesus as a witness against Israel. Uh, Stephen is saying, you are doing what your parents have always done. You are rejecting God's messengers and clinging to created things. And we'll talk more about the first of those, rejecting God's messengers, this week. And we'll talk more about the second of those, clinging to created things, next week. So we're going to look at ser uh, Stephen's sermon twice, uh, sort of picking up on one theme this week and a second theme next week. So this week, uh, if you look on the back of your bulletin at the outline, uh, we're going to talk about breaking with the past, submitting to Jesus, rejection for Jesus, and acceptance in Jesus. So we're going to talk about those four things, breaking with the past, submitting to Jesus, rejection for Jesus, and acceptance in Jesus. Uh, but first, again, let's, let's look at the story a little uh, in more detail. Stephen, you may remember, was just ordained as a deacon earlier in Acts chapter 6. Uh, if you remember, the Greek-speaking Christian widows uh, were being overlooked in the daily distribution uh, of whether funds or food, uh, and with preference being given to the Hebrew-speaking widows, Christian widows. And so the church, in order to address this uh, problem, uh, <clears throat> appointed seven Greek-speaking men to oversee that distribution. So they appointed certain men to oversee the distribution so it would be fair, right? Uh, so that it would no longer be uh, prejudiced in the way they were dealing with uh, Greek or Hebrew-speaking widows. Uh, but apparently, Stephen, who was one of those seven, uh, God blessed him not just to handle his administrative abilities well, but to speak powerfully, right? We're told that no one could argue with him in verse 10, and uh, even to perform miracles according to verse 8. So Stephen, he's not an apostle, he's not an elder, uh, but he's a Christian who is speaking about Jesus to his fellow Greek-speaking Jews. And it's those Greek-speaking Jews who argue with him. He goes to his own, right, his own people, uh, similar culture to him, and he begins to speak to them about Jesus, and they argue with him. That's what we're told in verse 9, uh, by mention of the synagogue of the freedmen, and uh, mention of the areas of Cyrene and Alexandria, Cilicia and Asia. It's, it's, we're being told that these are Greek-speaking Jews from all of these different areas who were then living in Jerusalem. And eventually these Greek-speaking Jews, uh, they pretty much just get fed up with all of Stephen's talk about Jesus. So they get some false witnesses uh, to accuse Stephen of speaking against the Jewish temple and the Jewish law. Now, the, the temple of God and the law of Moses were pretty much the most holy things that there were in Judaism. And so to speak against them was to speak blasphemy. 
So these charges are serious. So they seize Stephen and they bring him before the council and they hear these accusations. And the high priest asks uh, Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these things so? And Stephen begins to speak. And his speech may seem odd to you. Uh, he, he doesn't really defend himself at all. Uh, he retells the story of Israel, beginning with Abraham, trying to get his hearers to understand uh, the present moment rightly. You see, if you want to understand the present, you have to understand the past, right? You have to understand what God did to bring us to this moment. And so what Stephen wants for Israel, of course, is not to repeat that past, but to break with it. Which brings us to our first point, breaking with the past. And, you know, how many of you have had one of those moments, maybe you had it over Christmas break or New Year's, uh, where you, you do something or you say something and suddenly you realize, I've become my dad. <laughs> or I've become my mom. And, and often it happens, if you have kids, it happens when you're disciplining your kids because you say something, something comes out of your mouth and you think, oh no, that's exactly what my dad used to say to me. And, uh, you know, many of us are more like our parents than we would like to admit. That's actually one of Stephen's main points in this sermon, isn't it? Uh, he, he says it all throughout, but he summarizes it at the end. If you look at verse 51, he says to his hearers, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, the first thing to say before we get into what their fathers did, which we will get into, is that oftentimes we fall into the sins of our parents. Now, uh, we don't think about this too much because maybe because of the individualism of our, of our age, we like to think that we are our own people. But the truth is we often live out the sins of our parents, Again and again, we follow the pattern that they set for us without even thinking about it. And, uh, you know, our maybe over-psychologized culture tends to blame our parents for that, blame our past, right? Whatever problems I face, whatever wrong I've done, it's not really my fault. It's my parents. It's my upbringing. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we can blame them for the things that we do. I'm saying almost the opposite, actually. I'm saying that there are, are, are many sins which, in a sense, we have inherited from our parents for which we are blameworthy. We do them. And uh, I bring this up at this point uh, before we even get into uh, the details to really ask one question. You know, your parents may have taught you uh, lots of good things, and that's awesome. And, uh, but, of course, none of us are saints. And without taking away from that good, uh, have you thought through even some of the patterns of sin that you might have learned in your home? Uh, it's not to blame your parents or to stick it to them, but in order to repent. You know, Peter says uh, in the letter of 1 Peter that we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Right? We have inherited certain feudal ways from our forefathers, Things that have been passed down from generation to generation, which in our house were just perfectly normal. We didn't even realize there was something wrong with it. What feudal ways did you inherit from your forefathers? Later in 1 Peter, Peter says again, the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. And he's speaking to a Gentile audience. So he's saying the time that is past suffices for doing 
what you have always done. Or we might say the time uh, that has passed suffices for doing what your parents have always done or what your grandparents have always done or what their parents have always done. Now, uh, now again, maybe you had really godly parents and you can praise God for that who strived to bring you up in the fear of the Lord. Maybe your parents weren't Christians, but they were nevertheless really good people by anyone's standards. Or maybe your parents were as immoral as they come uh, and they taught you a life of sin. I don't know. Whatever the case, though, uh, breaking with the sinful patterns that we learned in our homes is a lifelong journey uh, because those are so ingrained and often so hidden from us. We don't see them because they're just a part of our lives. I mean, think about, the, think about it this way. Oftentimes we look at the past, we look at former generations, and we think, how could they not see that this was a sin? You know, we look at the patriarchs and we say, how could they not know that polygamy was a sin? Or we look at the American South, and Christians in the American South, and we say, how could they not know that slavery was a sin? And I wonder what future generations will say about us and look back and say, how could those 21st century American Christians not realize that this was a sin? Now, we praise God for his grace, right? That, that his grace covers even the sins that we don't know about, right? That Jesus' blood covers uh, known sins and unknown sins. And yet, whatever the case, this is one of those areas, right, where, where Christ calls us to leave our fathers and mothers to take up our cross and to follow him. And that brings us to the second point, which is submitting to Jesus, Stephen claims his fellow Jews were doing what their fathers always did. Well, what did their fathers always do? He, he begins uh, with Abraham. We'll talk a bit more about Abraham next week. But he moves from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Jacob's 12 sons. And we read in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7 this. Stephen says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Uh, you, you may be familiar with the story of Joseph, right? Uh, Joseph was the second youngest of 12. He was the favorite of his father, and so he was hated by his brothers. Uh, they sold him into slavery. They really hated him, right? They sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt, and through many providential twists and turns, God raised him up as the ruler, second in charge of all Egypt. And here's the pattern that, that Stephen is trying to point out to us. The one whom Israel rejected is the very one whom God raised up as a ruler. Stephen sets the pattern with Joseph, and then he moves on to Moses, where we see the pattern again. Moses' life, too, had many twists and turns. He was exposed as an infant. He was left for dead. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, brought up in Pharaoh's house. Nevertheless, Moses identified with his people. He defends an oppressed Israelite slave at one point, verse 24, and he strikes down the Egyptian. And we're told in verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day, he finds two Israelites arguing, and he tries to intervene, but verse 27 goes on to say, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside 
thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? It's actually a pretty good question. (laughs) But he doesn't wait for the answer, right? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And Moses then flees uh, as an exile in Midian, where God eventually calls him from the burning bush to go and rescue his people. And verses 35 and 36 tell us this. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, the one whom Israel rejected, God raised up as ruler and redeemer, even performing wonders and signs through him. You might think, well, did Israel then begin to obey Moses from then on out? If you know the story, uh, you know that the answer is no. And uh, Stephen goes on to tell us that in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And, you know, as you read through the story of Moses and the Israelites, what you what you find is that Israel persistently rebels against Moses again and again and again. Here's the pattern. Israel repeatedly rejects the very one whom God raises up. And in the midst of this, uh, Stephen says something telling. In verse 37, Stephen says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses promised in Deuteronomy that God would send another prophet like Moses. And the early Christians, they knew exactly who that was. It was Jesus. Jesus was the prophet like Moses. And of course, Jesus follows the pattern, doesn't he? God sent uh, Jesus to his own, and his own rejected him, John 1, 11. Yet God raised him from the dead as ruler and redeemer. And Stephen draws this connection in in the final words of his sermon, or some of the final words, in chapter 7, verse 52. Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And yet... Uh, This connection, Peter's already made this connection earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 2. He says, uh, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, like Moses, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see the parallels, right? Uh, Moses was attested by wonders and signs. Jesus, uh, like Moses, was attested by wonders and signs. Moses was rejected. Jesus was rejected to the point of death. Moses was raised up by God as a Savior. Jesus was raised from the dead. Moses was made ruler and redeemer. Jesus is made Lord and Christ. And notice that the persistent attitude of God's people here, uh, Joseph's brothers are jealous of their brother because of their father's favor. Moses' brothers, that's what uh, Stephen calls Moses' fellow Israelites. 
Moses' brothers asked, essentially, who made you boss? Right? Again, jealous of his position, perhaps. The chief priests delivered up Jesus out of jealousy, according to Mark 15. The Sadducees opposed the apostles because of jealousy, Acts chapter 5. It's interesting that every time they are jealous, right? God has put this person in a higher position than them, and they don't like it. I think that's, that's often the attitude of our hearts, isn't it, to people who are over us. Um, God has put someone over us in our homes, in our uh, workplaces, wherever it might be, and we think, who made you boss? <laughs> right? Who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah, sometimes we even respond to God that way, when we don't trust Him, uh, when we think He doesn't love us, when we, when we think He's not looking out for us, and then we hear His law, His command, His, His call on our lives, and our heart's cry is, who made you boss? Jesus comes along and claims authority. He, he demands our allegiance. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. How does your heart respond? Do you think, who made you boss? I'm my own man. I, I do my own thing, right? I run my own show. Or do you respond as Thomas did in the Gospels, my Lord and my God? Do you know that the Father has made Jesus boss by raising him from the dead? Now, maybe you think, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Of course I say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Of course I acknowledge him as the Lord and the Christ. That's great that you acknowledge Jesus. But do you do what he says? You know, think about Stephen's accusers, his opponents, right? Uh, who were they? These were the religious Jews. They were people who were zealous for God's law, zealous for God's temple. They accused Stephen of speaking against Moses, against the law. They accused Stephen of, of preaching a Jesus who would change the customs that came from Moses. These are people who loved the law. Their confessional theology was perfect, right? They knew the right things to say. They knew the right books to read. They, they knew the right churches to go to. They read Moses every Sabbath. They searched the scriptures. Jesus says uh, once in John 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But, Jesus goes on, it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, here's the disconnect. They had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They loved the scriptures. But they didn't actually believe the scriptures. They didn't obey them. Jesus went on to say in that John 5 passage, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And yet, uh, Jesus doesn't want them, doesn't want us to just believe his words, but to do them, right? You, you remember Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears my words, these words of mine, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. But Stephen's contemporaries, they heard Moses every Sabbath but they didn't obey. Stephen charges them with that in verse 53, right there at the end. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's their problem. They were good religious people who had God's law, but they didn't actually obey it. This is the danger that we often face in the church, right? I mean, there are lots of dangers out of the church as well, but, but there are dangers in the church also. 
It's easy to be religious, right? To come to church, to read your Bible, but never to actually bow your knee. To never actually say to God, you are the boss. You are the Lord of my life. We acknowledge God outwardly, formally, but we do not submit to him. Why not? I think in part because we still don't trust him. We still think that, that he doesn't really love us. He's, he's not really looking out for us. We've still got to maintain control. We've still got to hold on to the reins of our life to make everything go right. In fact, often religious behavior is a way of maintaining control, right? Uh, we, we do the right religious things because they make us feel good. They make us feel safe. They make us feel comfortable. Religious behavior uh, can be for us a means of helping life make sense. If I go through these motions and do these things, ensuring my place in heaven. If I just do this, then God will be happy with me, easing our conscience. If I just do this enough, my guilt will go away. This is probably more of a danger for me even than it is for you, right? Uh, to see my religious activity as a way of, uh, not as a way of serving God, but as a way of controlling him. And so like the Jews of Stephen's day, we, we at times hold on to the Bible, we go to church, and we do just enough to keep our world in order, but we don't submit. Right? We, we, we don't give up all and follow Jesus. That's, that's just too radical or too fanatical. It's just over the top. It's going too far. Stephen's prophetic indictment against God's people is you are doing everything your fathers did. You jealously reject God's leaders. You love to talk about Moses, but you don't follow him. Well, what if we do follow him? What then? That brings us to the fourth point, which is expect rejection for Jesus. Think about Stephen. Uh, God raised up Joseph, his brothers rejected him. God raised up Moses, his brothers rejected him. Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him. John 1.11, notice what is going on with Stephen right here in our text. Stephen comes to his fellow Hellenists, his fellow Greek-speaking Jews, and they reject him. And there are other similarities, right, with Stephen. Moses performed wonders and signs. Jesus performed wonders and signs. Stephen, chapter 6, verse 8, performed wonders and signs. But, but here's the point. If we, if we do decide, look, I want to take God's word seriously. I, I don't just want to hear. I want to do. I, I don't want to reject God's Messiah. I want to embrace him. Then what? We, like Stephen, can expect rejection. Here is Stephen, one of the first non-apostles that we see speaking out about Jesus and what happens. His own people reject him and ultimately stone him to death. I wonder, I wonder if you and I are ready for that. Not stoning, necessarily, right, but rejection. God calls us to always be ready to speak about our hope, which means always to be ready to speak about Jesus, because he is our hope. But we often don't. I often don't because I'm afraid. Afraid of how people might respond. Afraid of being misunderstood. Afraid of rejection. But to follow Jesus is to enter a life of rejection. It's true. Jesus promises persecution for his namesake. Right? You, you can't figure out a way to present the gospel just right so that you'll never be rejected. 
If you do that, you're not actually preaching the gospel. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Again, think about Joseph's brothers, right? They were jealous of Joseph. Why? Because of his father's favor. Jesus says it is because of our unique relationship to him that the world will hate us. Now, I know that there are lots of other reasons that people hate Christians, right? Sometimes we say dumb things or do dumb things. Uh, Sometimes we're harsh or judgmental or arrogant. But then we read here, there's the the shining face of Stephen, right? Chapter 6, verse 15. Why did Stephen's face appear like that of an angel? Was it shining like Moses when he came down from the mountain after he had been with God? You know, Paul says, as we behold Christ, as we, as we look on Christ in the gospel, we will shine like him. But Jesus himself said that we are the light of the world. And if that is true, if we shine like Jesus, if we, as we gaze on him, we become like him. If we shine like Jesus, and if the world hates Jesus, then it will hate us as well. Now, this is maybe a a different kind of strange pattern to follow, unlike the pattern of our forefathers, right? The pattern of Israel was was jealousy of those whom God loved, rejection of God's leaders. But here's a new pattern, to so spend time with God that our faces shine with his glory and we face rejection by the world. Now, we should never want persecution, right? We should never wish for persecution. We should never go out seeking persecution. uh, But we should wish to be like Jesus. We should want to make him known. And and that will often lead to rejection. In fact, it is promised. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's That's a promise. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Matthew 10.22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, says Jesus. You see, if if we preach Christ faithfully, if we represent him faithfully, there will be scandal. You know, Stephen didn't do anything wrong. Uh, so they made something up, right? They brought accusations against him and uh, made, made up charges and brought him before the council. I, I read recently that uh, you cannot preach the cross, which is a scandal, without scandal. There is no such thing as sanitized gospel faithfulness. It doesn't exist and never has. Are we ready for that? Why would you want such a life? Why pursue a course of action that that we know will bring persecution and scandal? What would give us the strength to do such a thing? What would motivate us to face rejection? Jesus promises his people rejection, but he also promises blessing. You remember the Beatitudes? We tend to love the Beatitudes, right? They're very sweet, the Beatitudes. Uh, Do you remember the last Beatitude? (laughs) Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when people hate you, 
and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And this brings us to our last point, which is our acceptance in Jesus. You know, when, when we live with the thought that God uh, doesn't love us, he's not looking out for us, we live out of fear. Fear that God will reject us, fear that others will reject us. Our religion often becomes a way of gaining God's acceptance, of manipulating God. Uh, life becomes one big attempt to make everybody happy, to get everyone to like me. Uh, life is me using whatever abilities I have to manipulate the forces that be to sort of gain the favor of the universe. If only if I live the right way or do the right things, then the world will like me. Then I'll be accepted. And so we often live actually in guilt and in shame and in fear, uh, wondering when people will find us out. Wondering when people will realize we're, we're not what they think we are. And of course, our guilt and shame and sin is real, right? Uh, God does judge sinful people. In fact, Scripture says that sinful people cannot stand in His presence. Where does that leave us? Well, that's where the gospel comes in. Uh, Jesus came to be rejected. Not simply to be rejected by us, His own, but to be rejected for us by the Father, that we might find acceptance in Him with the Father. Right? Jesus came to be rejected, not just by us, but for us and by the Father, that we might find acceptance in Him with the Father. Right? Jesus came to bear our sin and to bear our shame and to bear our guilt before the Father, that we might stand blameless and righteous and glorious before the Father. And of course, the truly amazing thing is that God's love is not just found on this side of the cross. Sometimes we think that. We think, that uh, we think as if Jesus came to twist God's arm into loving us. But God's love is the cause of the cross. Out of his love, God sends his son. Uh, the, the cross is not the cause of God's love, but the demonstration of it. You want to know if God loves you? Look at the cross. God's saving love is found there and there alone. That is the demonstration of God's saving love. In Jesus, we find not rejection, but acceptance. And so our religion no longer has to be a way of gaining God's acceptance. If I just do these right things, go through the right motions, then God will accept me. But it's a life lived out of that acceptance in gratitude and in thanksgiving. Life doesn't have to be in our hands with us maintaining control, holding on to the reins, because God does love us, and He is looking out for us, and He does know what we need, even before we ask it. And so we can live in obedience to Him, submitting to Jesus, facing rejection for Jesus because of our acceptance in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are scared of being rejected, uh, and yet we see in the cross that we do not have to be scared of being rejected by you, because in Jesus we know uh, by faith in him that our sins are forgiven, and that we do have acceptance with you in the cross. Help us to rejoice in that, to revel in that, to live in that, to rest in that, 
We pray that that would shape our lives and would allow us to live without fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.